from Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested Jesus, John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. 
Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Morning. Hope you're going well. Hope you're having a nice weekend. Uh, we're going to be spending the next 25 minutes or so thinking about uh, this passage of the Bible that David's just read to us. Uh, thanks, David. There he is. Uh, I wonder what you thought of it, because I think there's a bit of a um, bizarre mixture of stories here, aren't there? Uh, we've got uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. We've got Jesus walking on water, stories you'd definitely find in your kids' Bibles at home. Uh, and then we've got this story of Herod cutting off the head of John the Baptist and giving it on a platter to a little girl. I'm not sure there'll be many pictures of that in your kids' Bibles at home. I did suggest to the kids' leaders that that would be a good craft idea for kids' church today, but you'll be pleased to know they turned me down. It's kind of more the sort of story you'd expect to find in some sort of Hollywood, MA-rated, gritty TV drama, isn't it? Uh, It's pretty intense. A bit surprising that we would find this sort of story in the Bible. So I wonder what you think. I wonder why, why you think this story is in the Bible. Why did Matthew choose to put it in his book about Jesus? Of course, at one level, the reason probably is this is just what was going on, and Matthew was just trying to record what actually happened. Uh, but I think the story of King Herod shows us something else as well. Matthew's been writing about Jesus and about Jesus' kingdom. And I think the big point of this part of his book has been about uh, Jesus' kingdom and that you need to be part of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember we looked at some parables. Uh, we looked at the parable of the buried treasure. The kingdom of Jesus is like buried treasure. It's worth uh, selling things to get. It's like a fine pearl that you might give everything up for. We also looked at the parable of the net. Some people choose to be part of Jesus' kingdom and some don't. So if Matthew's on about Jesus' kingdom, why would he put this story in about a different king, about King Herod. I think this story reminds us that actually Jesus' kingdom is not the only kingdom. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't step into a vacuum. He came into a world full of corruption, full of evil. His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is a stark contrast to kingdoms like the kingdom of Herod. I think in our passage today, there's actually a real clash of kingdoms. There's Herod's kingdom, and then there's Jesus' kingdom. In our world today, there's lots of clashes like this, aren't there? Lots of decisions we have to make about which sort of way we go, which kingdom we go with. Uh, Maybe it's the election, and you have to make a decision to follow either Bill Shorten or uh, Scott Morrison, 
of course, there's other parties as well. Uh, maybe it's when you sit down at your TV, you have to decide whether you go Channel 7 and uh, My Kitchen Rules or Channel 10 and MasterChef. In this city, we have to decide whether we follow Port or The Crows. Uh, if you know me, you know I'm a big Port fan. Uh, Port had a good win last night and I'm uh, certainly in a good mood this morning. Uh, but I have, this, I have this friend and he really is a Port fan if that makes sense. He really is a Port fan. Next to him, I sort of look like a Crows fan. So this guy, he owns all the memorabilia. He buys the Guernsey every year. Every year, uh, He's always at every game. If I'm watching on TV, I'll normally see him. He sort of stands, sits right behind the goals and he'll always be there celebrating. Maybe sometimes not celebrating. And this guy even wore a Port Adelaide tie on his wedding day. This is the kind of commitment we are talking about. Now, I think Port Adelaide's a great uh, club to support in the clash of football clubs. That's the club I would say you should go for. You know, the sad thing about sort of living for something like your football club, though, my friend, he, he lives for the Port Adelaide Football Club. That's the kingdom he follows. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, the, the club, the players, I'm not sure they even know he exists. He spends his whole life thinking about them, spends his money on them. I don't even know, think they know who this guy is. This morning we're talking about a clash between different kingdoms. I want to show you that Jesus' kingdom is worth following. Following Jesus is not like following a football team. Jesus is a king who loves you, who cares for you. In fact, he knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. I want to think about what sort of king Jesus is by looking at this clash of kingdoms in, uh, that Matthew gives us. So uh, we're going to take some time looking at Herod's kingdom. And then once we've done that, we're going to have a look at what the other stories, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, as well as Jesus on, walking on water. Uh, we're going to have a think about what those stories tell us about Jesus and about the kingdom that he's building. Uh, so first, let's think about uh, Herod and this uh, story about the death of John the Baptist. Why don't we uh, have a look in our Bibles, and I would encourage you to follow along with me. Uh, if we start at verse 1, here Matthew writes, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this is actually a bit of a strange passage. Uh, If you're reading along in the book of Matthew, uh, you might be a bit shocked to find out that John's actually dead because only two chapters earlier, back in chapter 11, uh, there was a bit about John there and John was still very much alive. So if you can imagine you're reading through your Bible, you kind of read through chapter 3 and it's all about John and he's teaching and he baptises Jesus, you keep going and John comes up a couple of times, you get to chapter 11, uh, John's there doing some more teaching, he sends his disciples to find out about Jesus and then suddenly you get to chapter 14 and you read, oh, Herod thinks Jesus is John risen from the dead. And you think, what? Hang on, when, when did John die? You wouldn't really want to be John's friends or family reading this, would you? It's kind of a harsh way to find out that this character has died. And so Matthew decides he better get into the backstory. Verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. This really is a messed up sort of story, isn't it? King Herod seems to have gotten together with his brother's wife 
Uh, John points out that it's against the law, which uh, you'll find in places like Leviticus 20.21. It's just not what God's people were meant to do. Uh, But Herod's not happy with John telling him what to do, so he puts John in jail. But Herod's too afraid to kill John until this incident at his birthday. Verse 6, On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. Herodias, this, uh, uh, this new girlfriend of Herod, uh, is even more bloodthirsty than Herod. She gets her chance, her daughter does this dance for Herod, and Herod makes this oath, and she takes her chance. John the Baptist's head ends up on a platter. It's just messed up, isn't it? Brutal killings, power struggles. The poor daughter was probably something like only 12 years old at the time, Uh, so given that she had to be presented with the head of a man on a platter, I think we can put this down as pretty horrific child abuse as well. I wonder what you're thinking of Herod and his kingdom at this point. Herod's certainly a cruel, cruel king. He's certainly corrupt and evil. I actually think Herod comes across as pretty pathetic as well. That might not be the first thing that jumps out to you, but let me give you a few reasons why I think Herod's actually a pretty pathetic king. Uh, number one, in verse one, it says Herod is a tetrarch. It's a bit of a funny word, but what it actually means is that you rule one quarter of a country. So this is a king that actually only rules a small part of the country. He doesn't rule the whole thing. Uh, the reason for that is because his dad who was Herod the Great, ruled the whole country. And when Herod the Great died, he left the land to his uh, different sons. Herod the Great, you will remember him from uh, the Christmas story. He's the guy that uh, the wise men go to and then he tries to track down Jesus and then he ends up killing all the young boys under the age of two, kind of around the Bethlehem area, in an attempt to kill Jesus. He was a serious tyrant. He, uh, he committed genocide, when he died, he actually put to, put to death a whole bunch of his officials just so everyone in the land would be sad about his death. He is a proper tyrant, and he also had lots of achievements. I wonder if Herod's trying to live up to the reputation of his father. I wonder if you might call that daddy issues. So that's the first reason I think Herod's actually pretty pathetic. Second reason is he actually just solves his problems by putting them in prison. So verse 3 and 4, Herod's been doing the wrong thing, sleeping with his brother's wife. John points out, quite rightly, that it's wrong. Herod just takes the easy way out and shuts John up. He has a choice between sin and following God and he just takes the easy way out. He goes with sin. Third reason, did you notice verse 5? Herod puts John in, in jail, but he actually wanted to kill him But he didn't because he was afraid of the people. What sort of king is afraid of the people? Not very impressive. Uh, Of course, it makes sense that he was afraid of the people because actually at the end of the day, if the people rebelled against him, the Roman emperor would probably come in and take his position from him because Herod, see, he was a king, but he was also subject to the Roman emperor. He wasn't really a king in his own right. And fourth thing about this incident in his birthday, after his stepdaughter does this dance for him, Uh, He tries to show off, right? And he tries to kind of show to the other guys that he's one of the lads and he says, I'll give you everything you want. He's trying to show his friends that he's cool. But then when the girl comes back with the request to kill John, he's scared. And then the reason he does it, verse 9, because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. So first he was scared to kill John. 
then he's showing off, and now he's uh, scared to lose face with his friends, so he goes ahead and puts John to death. Don't you think he seems like he's pretty insecure? You don't have to agree with me, but I reckon Herod's a pretty pathetic king. He's insecure, he's afraid, possible daddy issues. My question is, why would anyone choose this king and this kingdom over Jesus? I think that's the point. And yet if the choice is between kind of these earthly kingdoms and Jesus' kingdom, for some reason we know that lots of people do choose the other path. They don't choose Jesus' kingdom. When people are faced with a choice between Jesus' kingdom and sin, so many people are like Herod and they take the path of sin. People have a choice between loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to things of this world. So many people choose things of this world. I don't think there's any kings like Herod around uh, here that you could follow, but lots of people do live for kind of insecure, more pathetic people, don't they? I mean, how many people live their lives for their career and live their lives trying to serve uh, some manager who's maybe a bit pathetic, maybe a bit insecure? I don't know about you, I've, I've worked for a few insecure bosses before. You know the kind I mean. I, I remember one boss who would always make bad decisions, uh, but then she would always stick with them because she didn't want to lose face, even though she knew they were the wrong decision. Of course, it's good to respect our bosses and, and work hard and try and help them. Uh, but bosses like this, they don't make good kings. They're not people to give your life to. Jesus is a good king. He is someone that you should give your life to. Let's turn our attention then. We've looked at Herod and his sort of corrupt and maybe pathetic kingdom. From the rest of this passage, I want to point out some things about Jesus and his kingdom. I've got two things. Uh, Firstly, Jesus is a king with real power. And secondly, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of compassion. Jesus is a king with real power and his kingdom is a kingdom, kingdom of compassion. So first, Jesus is a king with real power. You look at Herod, he was constantly afraid. He was just a puppet of Rome anyway. Jesus is a king with real power. And you see that in both our stories, don't you? He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. If we look at the story of feeding the 5,000 first, it's an incredible story, isn't it? Jesus is obviously quite affected by what's happened to John the Baptist, so he goes across the lake, hoping for some alone time, but the crowd follows along. In verse 21, it says it's 5,000 men and that there were actually women and children there too. So we're probably talking 10,000 people in this crowd. For reference, if you've been to a a footy game or a cricket game at Adelaide Oval, you'll know that big southern stand. Uh, That stand holds about 10,000 people. That's the sort of crowd we're talking about. And how much food does Jesus and his disciples have to feed these people? Uh, He only has two fish and five loaves. It's not very much, really. Uh, I've brought me and Annika's lunch for today along to church. It's uh, five loaves and two fish. Let me put that over here. Uh, The loaves are quite big. The fish are quite small, but I think the fish in the Lake of Galilee were probably quite small as well. They probably weren't oven baked and ready to go, but uh, me and Annika are going to enjoy this later. It's not very much food though, is it? You can imagine if me and Annika are having lunch later on and 10,000 people show up on the doorstep. I don't think we're going to have enough. Let me put this over here. Have that later. 
You might know actually that there are a number of examples of these miraculous feedings in the Bible. Uh, probably the other most famous example is from the book of Exodus. Uh, you know the story of the Exodus, the people come out of Egypt and they're in the desert uh, and they're angry and they're hungry, hangry. What does God do? I've got a verse from Exodus 16, verse 12 on the screen, uh, which we'll have a look at. This is what God says when the people are hungry in the desert. He says, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. God miraculously feeds his people in the desert. And what's interesting actually here is that the point, the point isn't just about feeding the people. It says here that God feeds them because he wants them to know that he is the Lord their God. This is not just about food, it's actually also about revelation. God feeds his people to show them that he is God. I wonder if a similar thing is going on with Jesus. The 5,000, or more, more accurately, the 10,000 people are hungry. Jesus feeds them, and of course, partly it's just because he doesn't want them to be hungry. But it also shows his power, doesn't it? I wonder if more than that, I wonder if it shows us that he is God. He is the true king. Now, I don't know if you ever heard one of these theories before, but there are theories around about uh, this feeding of the 5,000 not actually being quite as miraculous as it sounds. Um, people will say things like, oh, maybe, maybe Jesus dealt out the five loaves and the two fish, and then actually maybe everyone else already brought kind of a packed lunch with them, and, and they're inspired by Jesus sharing, so they got out their packed lunch and shared it all around. Of course, they're trying to make the story more believable because they don't want to just say that Jesus could have miraculously multiplied the food. I, I like to call it the world's first potluck dinner theory. Apparently, people are trying to make the story seem more believable, but I just don't buy it at all. I mean, the disciples are the ones who say that the people need to go to the villages to buy food. Don't you think they would have noticed if everyone had a lunchbox with them? And even if a lot of people did bring food around, what's with the massive 12 baskets of food left over at the end? It doesn't quite seem to add up to me. I think the most believable thing to... uh, take this story is is uh, just to take it at face value that jesus has worked a powerful miracle uh, but if you needed any more proof of jesus power what about the next story jesus finally gets the chance later in the evening to be alone and pray verse 23 he sends the disciples on ahead of him across the across the lake in the boat although they don't get very far because the wind's against them and then in the middle of the night, from about, between about 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus decides to catch up to his disciples, so he walks out across the water over to the boat. The disciples are blown away. They think they've seen a ghost, which is pretty reasonable given how incredible a sight they were seeing. And after Peter tries to walk on water himself, notice what happens in verse 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You are the powerful King. The disciples know who Jesus is. He walks on water. He feeds 10,000 people with only two fish and five loaves. He calms the winds. He is the Son of God. How does Jesus look next to Herod? King Herod, who is scared of the people, scared of Rome, scared of losing face, scared of doing the right thing, Next to Jesus, Herod certainly looks 
pretty pathetic. The two stories show us that Jesus is a king of power. The second thing I want us to notice is that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of compassion. We see this in both the stories as well. Going back to the feeding of the 5,000, did you notice how the story starts in verse 13? It says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Uh, Jesus had heard what had happened to John. He's obviously affected by it. Uh, You might know that Jesus was, of course, John's cousin. I suspect as well that Jesus is um, perhaps feeling a bit upset knowing that he's going to have to go to his death soon as well. And so Jesus goes off in the boat to a private place. And I don't know about you, I'm with Jesus at this point. I enjoy my alone time. Uh, This afternoon, I'll probably be a bit tired after preaching this morning and a big morning at church. Annika and I will head home. We'll eat our bread and fish. And then I'll be ready to rest. I'll uh, probably do that by having some alone time, probably sitting down with a good drink and watching the footy. It's not like I'm going to send Annika out of the house or anything, but I'm probably not going to be the best company for a couple of hours. When Jesus goes off to get some alone time, what happens? 10,000 people follow him. But was Jesus annoyed? Verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus had compassion. And actually, what I think is interesting is that Jesus' compassion is much more than just a feeling, right? Like, it's active compassion. He, he doesn't just care about the people. He heals their sick. When it comes to dinner time, the disciples are the one that's saying, oh, Jesus, why don't you send the people away? They can go buy their own food. No, Jesus, Jesus cares too much about the people for that. He feeds them. He feeds them so much food that they're all satisfied and there's lots left over. This is not just a powerful king, it's a king who cares. We also see Jesus' compassion in the walking on the water story. When Jesus is walking across the lake and all the disciples think he's a ghost, what does he say? Verse 27, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter plucks up some courage and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I actually would have thought at this point Jesus would tell people to, Peter to settle down. Like, sorry, Peter, like, I'm God here. I'm the one who's doing this incredible miracle. I'm having a moment here. Stay in the boat, Peter. But no, Jesus is compassionate. Yes, Peter, come out to me. And it's actually a sign of great faith, I think, that Peter's brave enough to get out of the boat. I mean, imagine uh, it's night, there's high winds. Imagine stepping out of a boat, stepping onto the water, wondering if the water was going to hold you or not. And yes, Peter does begin to doubt, and like so many of us, his faith is not perfect. But as soon as he starts to sink, who's there to pull him out of the water? It's Jesus. He's a good king. He's a compassionate king. He's a king who cares about his people. So following Jesus, it's not at all like my friend who follows Port Adelaide and they probably don't even know who he is. Jesus is a king who knows the people who love him. He cares about the people who are in his kingdom. In fact, he died for them. So Jesus is a great king, a powerful king, next to Herod especially, who's insecure, cruel. Jesus is the king you want to follow. Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom that you want to be a part of. 
And yet there is a choice, isn't it? Not everyone will choose to be part of Jesus' kingdom. This was highlighted last week in the parable of the net. And so can I say, if you haven't done so already, choose to be part of Jesus' kingdom. Matthew's been showing us that Jesus is a powerful king. He's a compassionate king. This is the kind of king you want to follow. Of course, there's a lot more we could take from these two parables, but I think this is perhaps the big take-home message that Matthew wants us to hear. Follow Jesus. Jesus is still building his kingdom today. He's building his kingdom in the church. We live in a time that's often called the now and the not yet. So in a lot of ways, Jesus' kingdom is still in the not yet. We're waiting for him to return We're waiting for Jesus to defeat his enemies. We're waiting for Jesus' kingdom to reign unopposed. So it's the not yet, but Jesus' kingdom is also here in the now. It's here in the church. It's here in his people. And so if you're part of the church, if you do follow Jesus, you are part of his kingdom. There's great encouragement for us. We have a compassionate king who cares for us, a powerful king to lead us. I think it's important to ask, though, as well, as one last thought, how are we going at being the compassionate kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus wants us to be? How are we going at showing active compassion? You know, not just having nice feelings, but actually showing real care for people. I think it's a real shame that when people think of Christians today, often they think of harsh people, of people who are closed-minded. It's our job to convince people that actually Jesus' kingdom is all about compassion. We need to show them that Jesus is the compassionate king. I hope when someone comes to visit our church, they see that this is a compassionate people. I hope people are made to feel welcome. I hope people go, wow, this is something I want to be a part of. That's actually how people should feel when they think about Jesus' kingdom. And they should feel that because Jesus' kingdom is worth being a part of, isn't it? Why don't I pray for us? Father God, we thank you that Jesus is a great king. We thank you that you you didn't just write off the evil and corruption of this world, but you sent Jesus into the world. Jesus stepped into a world of murder and violence, corruption and hate. And in this world, he is building a kingdom of compassion. We thank you that he is a powerful king, a compassionate king. I pray that you would help us as your people to follow Jesus as our king and to look to his example as we try and win, win others for your kingdom. We pray in the name of our mighty King Jesus. Amen.